The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We at the Fed understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. We're strongly committed to bringing inflation back down. COVID is down, but gas prices are up. Our work isn't done. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. It's about balancing common sense. It's about going from a red-hot economy to a stable economy so that things don't fall off the other side. It also means you got to pay people more. It also means, work what you, can I tell you something? Yeah. Work is like that. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The biggest interest rate hike since 1994. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the Federal Reserve goes for 75. It actually happened. And the White House goes for broke with big oil, urging companies to produce more or else. We're going to talk about the pressure on prices and politics today in Washington. Ahead with you and Rally from BDA Partners, someone who is actually moving money on all of this news today. His perspective is straight ahead. Our panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano, along with Morgan Ortegas, former Treasury analyst in the Obama years and spokesperson for the State Department in the Trump administration. And later, a conversation with the man in charge of implementing the infrastructure law, Mitch Landrieu, the former governor of Make That Mayor of New Orleans, about rebuilding the country in the age of inflation. 75 it is, the biggest hike in almost 30 years. Fed Chair Jay Powell says they are on it. We at the Fed understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. We're strongly committed to bringing inflation back down, and we're moving expeditiously to do so. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. Not that you should expect 75 basis points every time, which was made clear. It could be 50. It is pretty unusual. And the Fed action comes the same day the White House sends letters to about a half dozen major oil companies. Letters in the mail. Think Exxon, Chevron, BP, Marathon, so on. There were seven in total. The letters telling them that their unprecedented profit margins are unacceptable. The president of the United States calling for immediate action, his words, immediate action to improve capacity, saying the administration is prepared to use emergency authorities, defense production acts, to boost refinery output. I'm assuming it's defense production. Uh, There's been a lot for the markets to absorb here today. All of this, of course, Washington, whether it's the Fed or the White House, trying to get its arms around prices. And we seek insights now from Ewan Relly, co-founder and managing partner at BDA Partners, back with us today on Sound On. Ewan, welcome back. Are you as happy as the market seems to be with 75 basis points? Well, Joe, it's good to be back. Thank you. You know the market always wants predictability. The market wants calm and stability. And you're right, we've seen a lot of uncertainty over the last few weeks. Today felt like a relatively reassuring day. So, yes, I'm happy like the market is. Okay, the, this may be followed by another 75, although Powell today seemed to feel like it was uh, 
as unusual as it seems to be here that we might get 50 basis points. I think that I guess the question is, though, do you see the Fed front loading this having you know spent some time in the Oval Office with Joe Biden? The, you know, this is this is pressure time. Yeah, I think the, I think that's exactly right. The, the Fed is trying to front load it. Um, we may see 75 again in in July, probably 50 or 25 uh, in the final three meetings of the year. So probably another one and three quarters percent. Mm-hmm. Again, the market is expecting this now. And I think, of course, it falls hardest on on the poorer uh, parts of the society. But as far as uh, investors are concerned, we've got a relatively clear path uh, towards what we hope will be a soft landing. Um, I don't think it's it's quite as simple as I'm saying, but that's what, yeah. what we're looking for. Well, it would be awfully nice. Uh, do you feel like the market, now that we've seen this, this sort of sigh of relief, starts building in a bottom here as the investors look at the dot plot, as people start calling the peak uh, for inflation one more time? Yeah, I think, I think um, of course, we're hoping for, for an improvement after some pretty steep falls. Um, there's, an, there's an extra worry, which is the coming uh, quantitative tightening by the Fed. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a huge, huge balance sheet, which has more than doubled in, in size to $9 trillion over the last couple of years. That's a bloated uh, balance sheet. Which which the Fed has to deal with. So mm-hmm. there's still a lot of um, lot of room for the Fed to make mistakes. Overall, again, I I think and believe that the Fed was was slow to move on inflation, mm-hmm. but they seem to be getting their arms around it now. Uh, uh, it remains to be seen whether whether that optimism is misplaced. Really fascinating a question and answer in the news conference today. The, the news conference with Jay Powell, of course, when Bloomberg's Mike McKee shows up. This is why they should go to Mike for the first question. I don't know why that doesn't happen in all of these things. But I want you to listen to the uh, the question and answer. I'm sure you already saw this. And it has to do with headline versus core inflation and exactly what the Fed thinks it has the ability uh, to impact, remembering that the White House is constantly deferring to the Fed. If you have an issue here with, you know, whether it's oil prices, food prices, that's their job. The Fed, the, the White House doing what it can, but the, it's really the Fed's job to manage this trend. So it it speaks to the answer that Powell gives our colleague Mike McKee. Are you targeting headline inflation now or core inflation? In other words, uh, how far would you chase oil prices if they keep going up, if that's going to be the component that drives expectations? Uh, Would you risk recession for a headline rate if the core rate is holding steady or starting to go down? So we're responsible for inflation in the law. And inflation means headline inflation. So that's our ultimate goal. We, of course, like all central banks do, look very, very carefully at core inflation because it is, it's a much better predictor. And it's, much, it's, it's a much better predictor of where inflation is going. And it's also more relevant to our tools. As I mentioned, the parts that don't go into core are mostly outside the scope of our tools. So we look at that. But, you know, it, it's, it, it, the current situation is particularly difficult because of what I mentioned about expectations. We, 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 we can't affect, really, I mean, the energy prices are set by global commodity prices. And most of, of food, not all of it, but most food prices are, are pretty heavily influenced by global commodity prices, too. Also okay. other things. So we can't really have much of an effect. All right. Sorry for the long answer there, Ewan. But what he just said is, you know, we can't affect oil, we can't affect food. So we're focusing on everything else here in the core, yeah. right? 
Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate the value of having that core number and understanding longer term trends. But the White House keeps saying the big problems are oil and food. So what are we talking yeah. about here? Well, look, I think I think, um, again, the Biden administration is going to is, is already taking a lot of heat for inflation. Um, the public doesn't like it. And voters are probably going to uh, uh, react pretty harshly against the Biden administration. But I think um, the president did the right thing today using his bully pulpit uh, to the extent he can to try to encourage oil companies to do the right thing. Remember, yeah. oil companies are making very, very high profits through this period. Um, but unfortunately, refinery capacity is pretty much tapped out. Uh, so, you know, anything that the oil companies do to increase um, investment, that'll take a, a while to come through. I yeah. don't think uh, President Biden or Powell or anybody else can, can solve the Ukraine problem. And we're going to okay. definitely have a global grain, grain issue. And that uh, so touches there's, both there's of these. Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's your energy and there's your food. So yeah. while the Fed is hiking interest rates and potentially slowing us into a recession, these prices may not even react. Is, is that the concern? I, I, I think I think they will react. Of course, that's the concern. And you know, we've all been maybe spoiled by uh, by prices that have been very low to rise, very slow to rise over the last few years uh, until until the last twelve months. Um, I don't think the uh, neither the Fed nor the president can click their fingers and solve everything. I yeah. think they're taking the right actions and gradually. For sure, expectations are going to abate, uh, and we're headed in the right direction. That's that's the best we can say. Just saw an incredible story uh, across the Bloomberg terminal. A Fed-triggered recession threatens Biden's White House survival. Rate hikes to counter inflation lift the risk of a downturn to 72%, Ewan, in Bloomberg's economic models. 72%. Does that sound like reality? Is that your expectation? Yes, I think we. I think I'm afraid to say. I think we'll have a recession next year. Hopefully, it'll be a a, a pretty soft recession, a short recession, yeah. and growth will growth will will return. The fundamentals of the economy are generally good, but it's very very hard to come out of the pandemic we've been through right. with war and other problems without a, a recession at some point. We're still uncharted here, right? This is obviously recovering from a pandemic. Uh, we haven't done in a century, uh, certainly not on this scale. We've never just shut off the economy before, and we've never done it at a time of war, uh, at least considering the market implications we have now when it comes to energy. So how can you possibly forecast anything at this point, and How do you make a bet on any of this? Well, I think, I think look, the, the, the labor market is tight. Uh, uh, consumers are still spending money more on services than on goods at the moment. Uh, you know, part of this is, is anecdotal. But if you sit on an airplane, as I have done in the last week, or if you visit restaurants around the country, you'll see activity, consumer activity is still reasonably good. So I think, you know, this is an extraordinarily resilient economy. Yeah. I think it's been reasonably well managed on the whole. I think the Fed was, as I say, late to react to inflation, but I think the prognosis is not so bad. So why not start buying, or are you? I'm gradually starting to buy. Um, um, I'm licking, licking, licking my wounds from recent falls, but gradually yeah. starting to buy again. What is it? Something other than energy? Out of curiosity, are you are you just looking for individual companies that have been unfairly abused over the last few weeks? To, 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 to be honest, I think bigger companies are better, uh, you know, have stronger balance sheets, mm-hmm. uh, better, better position to weather um, the volatile markets. Uh, I think, you know, what, what happens in these 
uh, ruck, during these times of ructions is the, the bigger, stronger companies tend to yeah. acquire. The weaker companies will see, certainly see consolidation. Uh, I think consumer services will be stronger uh, okay. than consumer goods. I think financial services will do okay. There it is from you and Relly. I love this. Uh, great to talk to you again from BDA Partners. You and thank you. We assemble our panel next on Sound On. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Biden tells U.S. oil refiners record profits not acceptable. I mentioned the letters. There were seven of them, seven big oil refiners. The president wants to get busy, suggesting that in the age of unprecedented profit margins at a time of war, it is the patriotic thing to do to put more money back in the ground instead of sending it to shareholders. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked about it today and exactly what the letters were all about. So this is basically a, a bit of a, hey, we want we want you to act. It's time to act. We have done our part with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the one, uh, the, the one million uh, a day for the next six months. And so we need them to act. So that's where we are. We want to come to solutions, which is why we say we want to have that conversation. And we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Is there something the president's considering to compel them or a consequence if that does not I, I don't have anything right now to, to preview as to what would come what would come next. That's the question. What happens if they just sit on their hands or just keep their money in their pockets? As we assemble the panel here with the full court press, the Federal Reserve hiking interest rates 75 basis points, the White House sending out letters to big oil, and we have Bloomberg Politics contributor and Democratic analyst Jeannie Shanzano with us today, along with Morgan Ortegas, former Treasury analyst in the Obama administration, spokesperson for the State Department in the Trump administration. It's great to have both of you with us. Jeannie, are you impressed with this, I won't say whole of government approach, maybe whole of administration approach is a better way to talk about it. 75 basis points and some nasty grams to big oil. Yeah, you know, I have so much to say following that interview, which I thought was so fascinating. And, you know, I do think the Fed is is doing what it can to tap, tap down on the excess money. Yep. But I think the question you played that Mike asked is so critically important because the question now for the Biden administration and this oil letter speaks to it is on the supply side. Yeah. And, you know, you hear you hear the Fed chair saying, you know, there's not a lot we can do about that. You hear the Biden administration blaming people, including the oil executives executives. And yet there are a lot of things people are saying they need to do on the supply side that they haven't done, like the tariffs on the Chinese tariffs, for mm -hmm. instance. So, you know, that is a big, big question, I think, for the Biden administration. What are you going to do on that? And, you know, from the perspective of these oil executives, on the one hand, we increase production. You claim that we're destroying the planet. On the other hand, you claim <laughs> if we have it down, we're not. So, you know, right. you have the politics here at play and the blame game. Big question, I think, if that even works with the American public at this point because people don't pay too much attention to who he's blaming they're paying mm -hmm. they're paying attention to what we're paying at the pump guess there's a big meeting coming uh, morgan the president uh, said the federal government will open talks with the national petroleum council which represents the industry calling on companies 
to give the Energy Department an explanation as to why they have cut capacity, which happened in in many cases before this administration, and then what could be done to get it back up to speed, knowing it's going to take a while. Um, Morgan, at what point are Republicans not going to be able to accuse the White House of doing nothing? Uh, after 2024, potentially, when there's a Republican <laughs> in the White House. But I, I know mean, I'm listen, asking I that think... in reverse here. Is, the, is, is yeah. Joe Biden doing everything he can, or do you see other levers he should be pulling? No, I think that, uh, listen, Lindsey Graham in his debate with Bernie Sanders uh, in Boston a couple of days ago said it best. You know, hmm. uh, he said that President Biden and his team uh, went to war on American energy and the victims are the American people at, at the pump. Um, and and President Biden made it very clear. I mean, all the videos have been making the Internet uh, and Twitter over the last few months of President Biden during the campaign trail, you know, promising to end uh, the fossil fuel industry uh, in the United States. Listen, my former boss, Mike Pompeo, I, I think, phrased this well. He said every administration has a guiding principle that guides all of their policies, right? Everything yep. that they do. For, uh, for, uh, for Pompeo, for President Trump, that was his America first principle, meaning in every decision that every department made, what was best for Americans. And for President Biden and his team, that guiding principle is climate change. I think plenty of people think that's a noble goal. But what that 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 overriding theme of climate change um, being the guiding principle of the Biden administration has unfortunately um, just come into a harsh reality, uh, as we're seeing today of American energy prices. But you're How about also the rest of prices, though, like when we talk about rights. energy and oil, obviously you're speaking to, to, to that equation. But my goodness, we have across the board inflation on a global level. So that's that's clearly beyond the policies of this White House. Yeah, I just don't. I, I think what you're saying is a is a nuanced argument that's hard to make to the American people. Again, we're just ta- I'm just talking the politics of it, you mm-hmm. know, right now. It's hard to make that to the American people because, you know, they are feeling the pain when they check out at the grocery store and Absolutely. when they go to the pump. And and I just think that from a from a political perspective, making the argument uh, to go out and blame the blame the oil companies. Listen, that's definitely going to resonate with a certain part of the president's base. But if we're fighting over, uh, you know, the I live in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're fighting over my friends, mm-hmm. you know, suburban moms, uh, I, I just don't think blaming the oil companies is a win- winning message. People well, how want about convening to see them, um, action. They're going to have a big meeting here. He's been accused of not engaging with the oil companies. Does that help the narrative? And does it help to say invoke the Defense Production Act to get more oil out of the ground? Yeah, I mean, the president has to do everything he can. And and I give the White House credit for getting out there. They they are, you know, doing what they can. But, you know, the reality of this for any president, I mean, put Joe Biden aside, is you are very much like Bob the Builder without many tools on your belt. There's <laughs> very little you can do. I say that having had two boys, but, um, you know, there's very well little you can do. And so they're doing what they can. People want him to do more. He'll take the blame at the mm-hmm. midterm for it. But is it deserved? Probably not. I don't know. Jeannie and Morgan are with us. That's why it was, we try to figure this out. We're going to stick with the panel next and turn to the primaries. Yeah, it was primary day yesterday and some good storylines next. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. 
So a split decision for the Trump retribution tour in South Carolina last night. And the first Republican member of Congress losing a seat after voting to impeach the former president. We'll get into the results from primary night next with our panel. So we were asking at this time yesterday if it was possible for a Republican member of Congress in the House specifically who voted to impeach Donald Trump could possibly survive a primary. The answer so far is no. Well, the first last night, South Carolina Congressman Tom Rice lost his primary which we discussed again this time yesterday to Russell Fry. Remember the Trump-endorsed candidate who created that ad with the Joker and Satan in a therapy session with Tom Rice? Well, this is why. He's a narcissist, and he's driven by uh, attention, and he's driven by revenge. I took an oath to protect the Constitution, and I did it then, and I would do it again tomorrow. And... Won't likely have a chance. Tom Rice right there speaking with ABC News on the eve of the election. Didn't win the primary and it was not even close. It was like a 25 point spread. But a different story for Nancy Mace, also in South Carolina. And as I was reminded today on Twitter, these are very different districts, congressional districts. But the Republican congresswoman who didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump, but did criticize him in the wake of January 6th and was facing a Trump-endorsed candidate, she survived. Known by many outside of South Carolina as the Republican who proposed legalizing marijuana. We talked to her about that earlier this year, right here on Sound On. Let's reassemble the panel for more Bloomberg Politics contributors. Jeannie Shanseno, Morgan Ortegas is with us today as well, former State Department spokesperson in the Trump administration. It's great to have both of you this day after, uh, Jeannie, your thoughts on South Carolina. These were two different races, but the, the Trump retribution on Tom Rice was unmistakable with a 25-point loss. That's significant. It was a shellacking, as they say. And, you know, some of us thought, and myself included, this could possibly go to a runoff, and not at all. Fry really, really did extremely well. It was the but Joker, wasn't it? It was the Joker that changed everything. But I do think you're, you, the people you were speaking with on Twitter are right. The districts are critically important. We can't forget Nancy Mace's district includes uh, Charleston, yep. much more moderate there. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, the tone of their campaigns. Nancy Mace, she said she agreed with Trump on many things. She was yes, critical of him, but she right. didn't take him on directly. Tom Rice was on, I think it was MSNBC the other day, saying that, you know, it was a badge of honor to vote against the president. You know, <laughs> yeah, well, it guess was what? very defiant. <laughs> Morgan, what's your read on these uh, two races? The vote to impeach was obviously uh, the undoing of Tom Rice, but Nancy Mace was was under fire and, and managed to, to find herself out of trouble. She did. And I think Jeannie is right to talk about the tone. I mean, she was very complimentary of Trump, said she would support him in 24 if he ran, agreed with his agenda. She ran a very different campaign. And I think it's an interesting window in how the 24 presidential election will be conducted um, if President Trump decides not to run. Uh, I think the people that you will see at the top, uh, you know, you will be like none of these guys have said they're going to run yet. But let's just say it's DeSantis or Pompeo or, yeah. or others. Uh, they're going to be running close to Trump, whereas maybe the Chris Christie's or, you know, the, you know, gov the governor of Maryland, you know, th those people that will run away from Trump. I mm -hmm. think there's a very big stark contrast in how that would play in a primary. But I will say 
if I could just say the one thing that Republicans are really animated about uh, is the race in Texas. Myra Flores yes, is the right. first Mexican-born um, uh, American to, to be elected to Congress as a Republican. You know, I totally get the media. Everybody's talking about what happened with Trump-backed candidates or not. I will tell you what Republicans around the country are zooming in on is the fact Hispanic that they flipped working the class Americans. You're right, right. And Hispanic working class Americans in general. You remember that Myra's husband, um, I met her before. She's fantastic. Her husband is a Border Patrol agent. Uh, mm. We know that this community, the Hispanic American community, especially in Texas and Arizona, uh, they actually care uh, about the border. They care about the gas and cost of groceries, just like every other American. Sure. So this is, of course, though, temporary, right? This is this is a short term. We're, we're, we're in a special election. What does it mean, Jeannie, for the for the real election that will follow? Well, I, I agree with Morgan. I wrote down political tsunami, political earthquake, a demographic <laughs> one. I mean, this yeah. seat has been Democratic, as you mentioned, for 100 years. This is big news out of Texas. So, of course, this district now goes away. It was a special election to finish it. This is the last election for this district. It's been redistricted. Mm-hmm. But I think the larger the larger implications here are not as much in this case, actually, for Joe Biden, but the Democratic Party as a whole. It's long been stated, maybe not as publicly, that they have had a tendency to lump in people of color, Hispanics, Latinos, and so on, and appeal to them in sort of a a, a coherent way. And Mm -hmm. that has proven not to be successful. And this is one of the cases in which it was an utter failure. Democrats didn't even spend a lot until the last eight days of this, taking it for granted. And it was a big win. We'll have to see what happens when they redo this. But it was a big win for Republicans in that district. Morgan Ortegas, your take on Nevada, where... The, the Trump brand uh, is still apparently quite powerful. Adam Laxalt beat Sam Brown by almost 20 points, and those two candidates spent the better part of the campaign trying to out-MAGA each other. I think we lost Morgan Ortegas. Stay with me, Jeannie, because this is also pretty important here. Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro, the Democrat, is considered one of the most at risk in the Senate. That's right. Morgan has probably run out to Nevada to work on these races is probably what she's doing. But, you know, this is going to be one of the races to watch. And of course, Adam Laxalt, he was endorsed not only by Trump, but by Mitch McConnell. He is somebody Republicans feel very strongly about can take on. Cortez Masto, Democrats feeling like it's a seat they could possibly hold, but the numbers are hard. 39% approval for Biden there. The economy post-COVID, they're still trying to recover. It's a one-industry town, as we famously know. So really, really tough for them out there. And so, you know, one other story from Nevada is, of course, you've got a series of election deniers out there who have won, and potentially the Republican, if he wins Secretary of State in Nevada and now Florida, both election deniers. So Morgan was mentioning 2024. Yeah. Imagine counting the votes in Florida and Arizona oh with those two at the helm, if indeed that turns out If we could just get Morgan in for one set. We only have 30 seconds, Morgan, but I understand you are still yes. there. Is Senator Catherine sorry. Cortez Masto in big trouble? I think so. I think I think Jeannie's right there. But listen, the, what, what most Republicans are saying behind the scenes is we feel very good yeah. about the House. Uh, we think the Senate's a razor's edge, right, as it always is. I mean, okay. you look, Invigorated uh, by it, Texas. I get it. Morgan, thank you for being here. And Jeannie, this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Remember Infrastructure Week? Remember it actually happened when President Biden signed the bill into law. $1.2 trillion. It was the biggest deal in Washington at the time, bipartisan and unprecedented. And well, now it's being implemented in a very different environment than when it passed. Historically high inflation, expensive oil and gas, continued shortages of building materials. Dealing with all of this is the job of Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans, now in charge of putting the infrastructure law into place. And he's with us now in studio. Should I should I call you Mr. Mayor? Just call me oh, Mitch. Thank you. Please. But every mayor I've ever known who went on to have a bigger job, ambassador, congress, whatever, still loved being called mayor. Well, it's because it's the best job in the world. If that's what they all say. 100%. You still feel that 100%. way? 100%. 100%. Because you're the, you're the boss, but you're on the ground and you're responsible. And, uh, and it's hot and it's fast. And now you're and on the other intense. side of the equation, on the federal government side, talking to mayors. Yeah. What's that conversation well, like? Well, it's a good conversation. I mean, I know, I know a lot of these folks, and I know how they think, and I know what their challenges are. And um, I'm, I have a profound respect for the, for the immediacy of their work. When you're the mayor, you might or might not have security, depending on what city you're in. But mm-hmm. no matter what, you're on the ground. And so whatever it is that you say or whatever you and your city council indicate is going to happen usually happens like the next day. Yeah. It's not like a year from now. So when you need something, and you so, call the mayor. And when you need something, you call the mayor. And But by the way, the mayor you know, takes out their own garbage and they go to the grocery store, they go to the ballpark. So people, your constituents who know you, mm-hmm. are not shy of coming up to you, even in mass, and saying, listen, I know you're praying, but but." <laughs> <laughs> can I can I grab you for a second? I got like, a pothole to finish. You about. Let me just let me just finish this off, Father, and then I'll get to you. Um, you know, so you have that, but it's an immediacy, and you're proximate to the people, and it's yeah. a it's a joyful, exhilarating thing. But it's also very painful because you go to the funerals, mm. you know, people who are who are killed, or um, you know, ch- changes that happen in your city. You're there all the time, or if there's a catastrophic event, you're actually part of the people who get hit. Yeah by the hurricane or the flood or right. the electrical outage. So you're living in real time um, and you can't escape. But it's a, it, was a, it was really great. I really enjoyed it. Well, so this is why Joe Biden wanted you for this job. You're traveling the country talking to local uh, policymakers, mayors, governors, uh, people in local government who are going to decide where all of this money goes. You're about to unleash, you're in the process of unleashing a trillion plus dollars. It's never happened before on infrastructure. When that bill was first signed, that money was worth a little bit more. Now, we're talking about this against the backdrop of inflation. Are you concerned about having less buying power as these projects begin? Well, the inflation is the president's number one priority. I mean, everybody knows, American citizens who are, get up every day, have to go to work, worrying about getting their kids to and from school safely, yeah. unfortunately, um, and just trying to make ends meet, know that inflation is a real challenge. But they also know that we're living in a very difficult time. I mean, for God's sakes, we've come out of two and a half years of just intense turmoil from uh, the potential insurrection to the changes of a new presidency yeah. into, um, you know, Omicron just really taking a lot of lives of our loved ones and people working from home and into this incredible war that uh, Putin has put 
on the shoulders of the world by trying to invade uh, Ukraine and challenge freedom all over the world, which is straining gas prices. And uh, most people don't know this, but both Russia and Ukraine together produce about 40 percent of the world's wheat. We're learning this. Yeah. Uh, so the hard way. That's why the bread. That's why you don't have yeah. you don't have access to the things that we have. And then China. Um, which we bought a lot of stuff from, Mm -hmm. basically has shut down a number of different times. And so they don't have the kind of goods that people want to buy. And so when you don't have a lot of goods and people want a lot of stuff, Uh the prices go up. Well, you're in the construction business, essentially. You need oil. Correct. You need a lot of stuff that we're having trouble finding right now. So I am clearly, clearly inflation concerns the president for its impact on everyday Americans, but on everything that everybody's trying to build, the cost of it will go up. And that is true, except that this infrastructure plan is not a um, recovery plan in the sense that you put money in somebody's pocket today and you want them to spend it today. We're building bridges and we're building roads and we're building airports. And even on our best day, when we're going as fast as we possibly can, this is a long-term plan, two, five, seven, ten. So as the economy gets itself back on its feet over time through whatever pain that we're going to have to go through together, Mm -hmm. um, and the president's trying to ease this pain every day by getting Congress to lower prices and calling on oil companies to do the right thing, that it won't have the kind of impact um, over the long term as it as it would, for example, today. Sure, got it. Uh, the other major challenge has been the labor market, which is as tight as it's ever been, we're told. You need to hire a lot of people or someone is to do all of these jobs. Yeah. How difficult is that going to be in this environment? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's a, um, there are lots of problems that people can have in their life. That's right. One of them is there are no jobs and there's no work. And there's no food and nobody can eat. That's one problem. We had that problem before. This problem is we have more jobs. You got two openings and, for every and we job. Need, right, and we yeah. need people. That's a that's a problem that, that that creates lots of opportunities. And you have to see it that way. And so it's just all about solving problems. So everybody in America, the whole point of it was to help put people in America back to work and to build things in a way that prepare us to win the 21st century no matter who's competing against us on the world stage. And oh, by the way, Notwithstanding inflation and gas prices, which the president is working on every day, Mm. because of the president's policies, almost every economist agrees that we're in a better position financially to weather this storm than any country in the world. Because, you know, inflation and gas prices are high everywhere. Mm -hmm. So this is just as in the United States. But the president would remind everybody that since he's been in office, we've created 8.7 million jobs. That's more in the first 18 months than any president than anybody can remember. The unemployment rate is at three point two percent. It also means you got to pay people more. It also to come means work for you. Is, can I tell you something? Yeah. Workers like that. They, they like sure getting paid do. more. And so does so the, president. the president. He's been calling the, out the companies for complaining. The president about likes this. that too. The more wages you pay, the better you know people can 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 uh, invest in themselves and their families. However, it creates a challenge, and mm-hmm. the challenge is how do you keep? It's about balancing common sense. It's about going from a red hot economy to a stable economy so that things don't fall off the other side. And it's just not overly easy. It's not like turning off a light switch. The president is going to continue to use the power of his presidency to make sure that we get things to the to the middle class and to build things from what he says, the bottom up and the middle out, not trickle down, because it never trickles down. It never trickles down. So the president put the money, his money where his mouth is on this bill. And it's going to improve people's lives. It's going to make us safer. It's going to give us more tools. Laying high-speed internet, for example, so yeah. that everybody has access to knowledge. In case people didn't understand the importance of this, after COVID, they surely do, of trying to work from home mm-hmm. without internet. You just can't play in, in a modern economy. You can't, you can't do agribusiness. You can't 
Um, uh, you can't do telemedicine. You can't do precision agriculture. You can't build entrepreneurship from maybe wanting to live in a rural area and then have some kind of work experience in the in the urban area or vice versa. Yeah. It's a so high-speed Internet, it is an absolute utility and a necessity. And, and it really is about equality, too, and laying, having a level playing field so everybody in the country can participate. You got that. And then there's money in here to build a clean energy economy. Everybody now knows with the price of gas as high as it is, mm-hmm. we got to get out of being dependent on other folks. And so we have to build other sources of energy, which we're aggressively doing so that we can help with climate, but also just lower the cost on American people. And, we, and we're and working hard to get there, and I think we will. You helped to rebuild uh, one of the greatest cities in the world as the mayor of New Orleans following Katrina. You have institutional knowledge, having been through that, that I'm guessing no one else in Washington has. What do you, what do you see that they <laughs> well, don't? I love my city so much. I love the people of New Orleans. They have so much heart and so much soul. And and we're so thankful, by the way, to the people of America for reaching down and helping us in our darkest hour. You know, we had uh, 1,800 people were killed in Katrina, and 250,000 homes got destroyed, and the whole world came to help us. And, you know, we're forever grateful yeah. for that. But in the middle of that catastrophic event, it caused us to really kind of get our act together and start thinking about who we were and mm. what we wanted to build back. And we didn't really want to build it back like it was. Now, we wanted to maintain our essence. We wanted to maintain our authenticity. We wanted to maintain our specialness as a and the culture of the city, but we also knew that we had been a little bit outdated. Like the buildings were old and tired. The roads weren't built the right way. Maybe the transportation systems could have been built for the 21st century. The schools should be 21st century learning centers. So we had a chance to build back the way we should have had we gotten it right the first time. Mm. So interestingly enough, the president says, I want to build back better too. So I just don't want to go build roads and bridges like we used to. But if, I, if I'm putting buses on the street, I want the buses to have batteries in it. So when a kid gets out of the bus, he doesn't have to suck exhaust yeah. and have asthma. That, that makes kind of perfect sense, right? If, if we don't want to depend on, on, on Russia or other folks for oil, why don't, we de- why don't we decrease our dependence on oil and move to the electrification of, of the economy? But you so also had to organize a massive uh, – this, well, was, this was the D-Day of yeah, rebuilding. Well, what happened was I learned that, that when it works well, and it can work well, the federal, state, and local governments – in partnership with the private sector, the not-for-profit and the faith-based all have to be at the same table, Mm -hmm. pulling in the same direction. I call it one team, one fight, one voice. And so it's like herding cats. You know, it's like just, my grandma would say elbow grease. I mean, you gotta work it. You gotta set the system up right, and then you have to work the system because human beings are imperfect and they won't always doing it. But if you're going to win a Super Bowl and you call a play, you got to make sure everybody's running the same play. That's right. And they're doing it the way you're supposed to. And then you execute it and then you win. But if, if you're pulling in the wrong direction or people not following the same play, you've got no chance. Mm-hmm. Even if you have, even even if the strategy is a good strategy. So you got to have the players. you got to have the system. you got to have the strategy. You have the execution. And then you just got to do it. And you got to keep doing it and keep getting better until you get you know, really good at it, and you build something strong and good that can last the ages, and that's what we're trying to do. Mitch Landry, I can't wait to come. My, my, my boss is listening. I can't <laughs> wait to come and meet you at Galatoire's for lunch. You can show me what you're doing with that highway and we the Treme and everything else in the city. We can eat We can eat some gumbo. We're going to have a good time. Oh, and some beignets and some coffee oh, while you're at it. Sign me up. Mr. Mayor, great c'est to see le, you. C'est le bon temps roulé. I'm so easy to get to through my stomach. Uh, thanks to the former mayor. Mitch Landrew with us talking infrastructure in the throes of inflation here on the fastest hour in politics. Thanks to our panel as well and to you and Relly for being with us on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.